Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A missionary served for many years at the lonely outposts of Northwest Canada. His journeys took him into much what we see up here in Alaska. It took him into logging camps, construction crews, many small villages. It took him to some of the most toughest people that you could find to evangelize in the Canadian West. And he was traveling north one day along a road many of us know a little too well, the Alaskan Highway. And it was a lonely stretch of road, but his plan was to stop at every wayside cabin that he came across, leaving a greeting, leaving a gospel track and a word of testimony. And he came to this cottage that was surrounded by a fence, and it had a big, big honking iron gate with the warning, beware of dog. Well, you've seen these signs before. I've seen these signs before. They don't always scare you because you don't always believe that there's actually a dog. So undaunted, he just unlatched that gate. And then the dog appeared just like that. It was massive. It was a huge dog. It was massive and it was fierce and it showed its teeth and it was growling. And the missionary paused for a moment and then he considered what he was going to do. Prudence told him to skip that house. Conscience told him to go ahead and trust the Lord. And after a word of prayer, a moment of prayer, he carefully opened the gate and he stepped inside. And this dog, it looked like he was just going to plunge at any moment on him. But he ignored it. And slowly, very deliberately and methodically and carefully, he made his way to the house. Well, the dog followed, continuing the whole way, continuing to threaten. And he arrived at the door, and before he could even knock on it, it opened. And a woman stood there with a loaded gun in her hands. And the missionary greeted her and offered her one of his tracks. She eyed him up and down as he took it, and she said, Mister, can't you read? Didn't you see the big sign that says, Beware of the dog? And even after he had confessed he'd seen it and that he'd been hardly looking at anything else, she asked him again, clearly frustrated with him, didn't you see the dog? And then she said this, mister, that dog is trained to kill. I live alone here when my husband is away. That dog is my protection. That dog is a killer. I'll take one of your papers, mister, but next time, pay attention to the sign. In telling of this event later on, the missionary said, listen to this. I had to go up to that house. Why? Because if I would have backed down there, I would have backed down everywhere. Every time there was a difficult place, I would have backed down. Well, I believe the Apostle Paul was made of the same kind of stuff as this. Difficulties did not deter him. They dared him. 
It is one of the marks of a pioneer in the faith. Paul had actually arrived in a neighborhood familiar to him since boyhood days. His birthplace was in these parts. And now he had some tough decisions to make, but Paul was just the man to make them. The way he wanted to go was ahead through the Taurus Mountains. And troubles were ahead everywhere for him. You see, the coastline was infested with pirates. The mountains were the home of thieves. The way ahead was steep. It was rugged, full of wild beasts, lawless men. The going would be tough. But none of that deterred Paul. Because to quit a missionary effort, just because of some tr troubles or difficulties, would mean to surrender all along the line. You know, the book of Acts brings us back to the preeminence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It brings us back to the work of God. Picking up where we left off last time in Acts, in verse 13, we saw last time that they had departed from Paphos, landing in the modern-day country of Turkey. They would have sailed roughly 200 miles across the Mediterranean Sea. And verse 13 tells us that they came to Perga. Perga was roughly 12 miles inland, and it was located in the region of Pamphylia. This was the land that was between the Taurus Mountains and the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Perga seems to have just been a stopping place on their journey. And the end of verse 13, it reveals to us that it was at Perga that John Mark departed them and returned back to Jerusalem. Now, speculation never ends as to the reason why John Mark refused to go with them. It could have been the dangerous journey through the Taurus Mountains. It could have been that Paul was assuming more authority and that his cousin Barnabas was moving more into the back seat. Did he come down with malaria in the lowlands of Pamphylia? Did he have a problem with the Gentile mission? Luke was silent on the matter. But as we will witness when we get to chapter 15, this wasn't a small thing. This was a little bit of an upheaval. This was huge. The falling out was considerable. And Luke simply records that they departed from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Antioch was actually 100 miles, if you can follow it up on the screen along that orange line, it was actually about 100 miles to the north across the Taurus mountain range. The route was more than difficult. This wasn't an easy trip at all. The coastline, as I said a minute ago, was infested by pirates. The mountains were notorious for the bandits that lived in these mountain passes. They were famous for robbing people as they traveled through. The route was steep. It was rugged and full of wild animals and lawless men. Even the Roman Empire had a difficult time trying to keep law and order in this region. It was going to be a difficult trip, but none of these things, none of these things stopped the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 years later that he was in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, I think he had this trip in mind. Because he would have gone through some difficult rivers to cross and plenty of robbers to avoid. Now this Antioch was actually up in the highlands. It was referred to as Pisidian Antioch, and it was roughly about 3,600 feet above sea level. It was a leading city in this part of the Roman province. A large Jewish population lived there. And we learn in verse 14 
that on the Sabbath, Paul and Barnabas went in the synagogue and sat down. Now, the synagogue was more than just a place to worship. It was a central hub for the Jewish community. It was where they worshipped. It was where their children went to school. It was the hub of all social activity for the Jewish people. So if you wanted to reach the Jews in any given town, the synagogue, that's where you went. That was the place to go. Now, the rulers in charge of the synagogue were responsible for worship. They were responsible for appointing people to pray and the reading of the scriptures. They actually had a very methodical and very set plan of our pattern of worship. You see, they had a cycle of scripture readings. For 154 Sabbaths in a row, they would go through this cycle of scripture readings and then they would start them all over again. And in their services, they actually had six basic parts. First was the reciting of the basic profession of faith known as the Shema. This was based on passages such as Deuteronomy and Numbers. And then they had a time of prayers, including 18 benedictions. And then third was the Torah, reading from the books of the law. Fourth, they had a reading from the prophets. Then they'd have a message, usually on the passages from the word of God that they had read. And then the service would be closed by a benediction that was pronounced by the ruler of the synagogue. Notice how verse 15 follows this exact same methodical pattern. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. They called upon Paul and Barnabas to speak. It could have been that Paul was dressed in a way that identified him as a rabbi. It normally was the custom to allow visiting rabbis the opportunity to speak. Paul had studied under Gamaliel, and most rulers of any synagogue would welcome the opportunity to let him come up there and speak. Paul stood up, he motioned with his hand to get their attention, and he began to speak to the people. In verse 16, Paul addressed both the Jews and the Gentiles that might have been there, those that feared the God of the Jews. And as we go through this message, as we go through Paul's message to the people at the synagogue, notice with me all throughout how the focus, the constant focus is on the work of God. As Paul moves through the history of the Hebrew people found in the word of God. Paul was proclaiming the work of God in their lives all throughout this passage. Over and over, we're going to see Paul refer back to the Old Testament to point out God had been faithful to all of his promises for Israel, promises that were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. So stick with me, grab your Bibles, and stick with me as we move through this, because I'm telling you, we are going to move fast. But I honestly believe that the reason we need to look at this all in one chunk is because the intent of this text is to be an overall survey of the work of God. So let's take a look at it. Paul begins by focusing on the mercy and kindness of God toward the people of Israel. In verse 17, we read this. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and made his covenant with them. Notice the focus here on the sovereignty of God. God chose the fathers of Israel. God exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land. And remember what we read in Exodus, that they grew in number and they became mighty. Exodus 1.8 teaches us that eventually a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
This new king, he enslaved the Hebrew people. But God didn't forget about his people, did he? And with an uplifted arm, he, God, brought them out of it. It was another clear demonstration of the power of the sovereign hand of God. Who put up with the people as they complained time and time again in the desert? Verse 18 answers this way. It was the Lord who for about 40 years put up with their, their ways, their rebellion, their constant grumbling in the wilderness. And when the new generation finally came into the promised land, again it was God at work. Notice verse 19. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. In Deuteronomy 7.1 lists the seven nations that God destroyed. But then in verse 20, we get into a little bit of a debate. The new King James and the King James actually put the 450 years in this verse, making the 450 years the time of the judges until Samuel the prophet, which is Paul's rounded number then for the time of the judges. But other translations, like the New American Standard and the ESV, they put it back in verse 19. And this is how the New American Standard reads it by saying at the end of verse 19, all of which took about 450 years. And under that view, the reference to the 450 years seems to be a reference to the 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and then 10 years of conquest. Good arguments on both sides of this one. I lean towards the view that the New American Standard is correct on this, that the 450 years belong in verse 19. But don't miss the main point. After they came into the land, God did not abandon them. And then in verse 20, how does Paul continue? It was God who gave them judges up until the time of Samuel the prophet. All throughout that time, the people continued to live in disobedience to God, but God continued to be faithful to them. Samuel, if you know your Old Testament, he is the link between the period of the judges and that of the kings. Samuel was the last judge. He anointed the first king. He anointed Saul. Samuel was both a judge and a prophet. Luke records in verse 21... And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Now, this is actually worth taking a look back in the Old Testament. Turn back, if you would, to 1 Samuel, and we'll look at chapter 8 in 1 Samuel. And when you get there, you see that verse 1 of the chapter teaches us that because Samuel was getting old, some of you can relate, but Samuel was getting old, he had made his sons now judges over Israel. Verse 3 teaches us that his sons, hey, they did not walk in his ways. They took bribes. They perverted justice. They just weren't the same. Take a look at what we read in 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. Please never say those words to me. Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. What did they want? What did they want? Well, they simply wanted a, a king like the nations of the world. They wanted to be ruled by men rather than by God directly. They were showing a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. Then verses 6 and 7 in 1 Samuel 8. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected, key words here, for they have not rejected you, but what? They have rejected me that I should not reign over them. This reminds me of a small country church where the pastor, he called a special meeting of the congregation to approve the purchase of a brand new chandelier for the church. And after some discussions about the pros and the cons of whether they should buy it, an old farmer stood up and said, buying a chandelier may seem like a good idea to you, but I'm against it for three reasons. First of all, it's too expensive and we just can't afford one. Second, there isn't anybody here who knows how to play one. And third, what we really need in this church is a new light fixture. The moral of the story is make sure you understand what you're asking for. And you see, that's the lesson for Israel. Learn this because God does the same thing today. When his people show a lack of faith, he sometimes will give them exactly what they're asking for, exactly what they want. But remember what I say, your sin will take you farther than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. They wanted a king, God gave them one, and it led to painful days ahead. So verse 21, back in Acts, it reminds us that King Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, from the same tribe as that of Paul. But King Saul was disobedient to the Lord, which led to his removal as the king of Israel. In the mercy of God, Saul was allowed to rule for a period of 40 years. And the Old Testament doesn't actually tell us specifically how long that Saul ruled for, but Paul follows the teaching of his time by telling us that it was 40 years. Now, here's what I want you to focus on. Watch this with me. Notice the continued progression in this passage. Verse 17, God chose the Jewish fathers. Verse 20, God gave them judges. Verse 21, God gave them Saul. Verse 22, God removed Saul and he raised up for them David as king. The term raised him up is a common Old Testament expression for God bringing forth a prophet or a ruler to serve his people. Paul called attention to the truth that God himself testified of David. I have found David the son of Jesse. This Paul quoted from Psalm 89 verse 20. Notice how many passages from the Old Testament Paul is quoting from here. Notice how much he knew the word of God. God testified that David was a man after my own heart. This Paul quotes from 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. And God testified that David was a man who will do all my will. This being taken from Isaiah 44, 28. You see, David was a man guilty of murder. David was a man guilty of idolatry. And yet God somehow testifies that David was a man after my own heart. Not a perfect man by any means. But a man who saw his sin for what it was, and he repented of it. Which is what you see in the Old Testament. You see that in Psalm 22. You see it in Psalm 38 and Psalm 51, where David just weeped over his sin. David's overall desire was to do the will of God. And from this man's family line came the Messiah. And this is what we read next in verse 23. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. 
Now we begin to see the direction that Paul is heading. God working throughout all of history to bring about the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the seed of the woman who bruised the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the virgin-born son whose name is God with us from Isaiah 7.14. He is the wonderful counselor and mighty God of Isaiah 9.6. Micah 5.2 foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And what does Matthew 2 teach us? It teaches us that he was born precisely there. The Old Testament teaches us that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham and Jacob. Psalm 110 predicted the Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews 6, it records the fulfillment of this in Jesus the Christ. Centuries before Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9 predicted he would just do exactly that. Psalm 41 predicted the betrayal of Christ. Have faith in the word of God, friends, because there's only one name that could historically fulfill all of these prophecies about the Messiah. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. So verse 23, it ties together Paul's two points. Historically speaking, Jesus was the offspring of David. Prophetically, he was the one that, according to the promise, God the Father brought out of Israel as Savior. Now before the Messiah would come, a messenger would come. What was his name? John. This messenger would come calling out, proclaiming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. The references to John the Baptist in verses 24 and 25 seem to be pulling from Malachi 3.1 where we read, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Jews of the first century looked at Malachi 3.1 as a reference to the coming of the Messiah. And this is the image that we see consistently throughout the Gospels of John the Baptist, of John the Baptist being the herald for Christ, preparing the way for the King of Kings. And the message that John brought was repentance as a way of preparing themselves for the coming of the Messiah. In verse 25, we read that toward the end of John's ministry, John himself said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Now this passage, it leaves us to wonder if in fact these Jews had actually heard of the ministry of John the Baptist. It wouldn't be too hard to believe that they did because a few years later we read over in Acts 19 that Paul would encounter a group of Jews, of, of John's disciples, even further to the west at Ephesus. And if the people of this synagogue had heard about the ministry of John the Baptist, Paul was just setting the record straight. He wanted to make sure that they put his ministry into proper perspective. John the Baptist was an important testimony that, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Now, verse 26 is a key verse in this passage. Don't miss this. Men and brethren... Sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. The promises of God had now been fulfilled in the person of Jesus the Christ. The word of salvation has been sent. Once again, we see the testimony in this verse that Paul was addressing both Jews, which would be the sons of the family of David, and Gentiles that feared God. 
Now the tragedy that we will see later on in verse 45 is that the Jews would reject the message of salvation. See, Paul wasn't a fool. He knew what the objections of men would be. He'd preached the gospel before. He knew what men were going to say to him when he started preaching Christ. So he confronted ahead of time some of these questions that might arise about Jesus. And the question that Paul was addressing is one that plagues the Jewish people even to this day. If Jesus is the Messiah, why did the Jewish leaders fail to recognize him as the Messiah? Paul gave the same answer that Stephen did earlier on. It was because of their sin-hardened hearts. Notice verse 27. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. You see, the Jewish rulers really didn't know Christ. The Jewish rulers really didn't know the word of God. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? They didn't know the words of the prophets, and therefore they actually ended up being the ones that fulfilled the prophecies which taught that the Messiah would suffer and die. You see, the irony of all this, the irony of the Jews is that they should have been the ones to understand who Jesus is, because they read the prophecies about him every Sabbath day in the synagogues. But what happened? Well, they substituted traditions and religion, the religion of men, in place of the living word of God. Just as those of our day that gather in the name of Jesus Christ, they can go to church and read his word every single week. They never come to a true knowledge of Jesus the Christ. And they use the same wording, don't they? They use the same terminology as that of the true church. But they view Jesus through the lens of tradition and the teaching of men, keeping them blind to the truth of Christ. So the second question that Paul seems to be addressing here is, if the Messiah was rejected, doesn't this nullify the plan of God? If the Messiah was rejected by Israel, doesn't this ruin God's plan? Doesn't this nullify the plan of God? And Paul's answer is no, not at all. No way, no how. Because with verse 28, Paul briefly recounts the fact that even though Christ was innocent, which Pilate, remember, he testified that himself, the Jews still asked for Pilate to put him to death. But all of this was foretold in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 3 tells us he is despised and rejected by men. Even the horrifying sin of the crucifixion of Christ was a fulfillment of prophecy. In Psalm 22 alone, we have the prediction of the words of Christ on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, we have the prediction of what Christ would actually go through on the cross. The congregation of the wicked surrounding him. The piercing of his hands and feet. The dividing of garments and the casting of lots for his clothes. Psalm 34 predicted none of his bones would be broken. Psalm 31.5 predicted that the Christ would go and say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. After all of these prophecies concerning his death were fulfilled from the Old Testament, Paul tells us in the second half of verse 29, they took him down from the tree and then they laid him in a tomb. Now we've seen this reference before referring in the book of Acts 
to the cross as a tree. But notice with me the importance of the burial of Christ. Paul makes it clear that his body was not just asleep. His body was dead and buried. And even this, even Christ's burial fulfilled prophecy. Those that died by crucifixion were typically thrown into mass graves in that day. Since this type of execution was typically reserved for the lowest of the criminals. But yet, what do you read when you get to the Gospels? They laid Jesus in a tomb. And this was once again predicted in the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah 53 verse 9, it says that they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Then watch the contrast of verse 30. It's beautiful. It's simple, but beautiful. But God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, we've said it many more times in this church, but let's say it again. The resurrection of Christ is the ultimate proof that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? Paul starts to back up this claim in verse 31. Watch it. He says here that Jesus was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And then with verse 32, Paul takes it a step further. Not only do we know that there was over 500 witnesses that could testify to these events, but Paul and Barnabas, they were there to share with these people the good news. The promise which had been made to the fathers were now fulfilled. And in verse 33, we read the promise was fulfilled when God raised up Jesus. And watch what Paul does now. Now he's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7 to back up his point. If you think the Old Testament isn't important, take a look at Acts. Because Paul was quoting it verse after verse after verse after verse. Learn the word of God for your own edification. Paul quotes Psalm 2, verse 7 to back up his point where it's written, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now the psalm that Paul quotes here at this point is referring to the incarnation of Christ. And then after the resurrection, when Christ ascended, Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul was building towards this point, the resurrection of God the Son. Using the same wording in verse 34, Paul now speaks of the raising of Christ from the dead. But he takes it a step further. And Christ would no more return to corruption. This time Paul quotes Isaiah 55, verse 3. Notice what it says. I will give you the sure mercies of David. To understand what Paul is saying, you have to remember that the mercies are blessings of David. It refers to the promises of God that he would establish his offspring. And a descendant with an eternal throne and a kingdom that would last not just for a little time, but a kingdom that lasts throughout all eternity, forever. Now, this was obviously not fulfilled in the life of David. It's to be fulfilled in Christ. But if Christ died, if Christ did not rise from the grave, it's pretty hard to have an eternal kingdom, isn't it, if you're dead? Paul then quotes another psalm. This time, he says here, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. This time, Paul is pulling from Psalm 16, verse 10. Paul himself explains what he meant with this in verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. In meaning this, David's body saw decay. Therefore, his, this promise cannot refer to David. It must refer to the Messiah. 
the body of the Lord Jesus Christ would not see corruption, which is exactly what he tells them in verse 37. See, don't get bogged down in this text. Don't miss the intent of the overall beautiful theme that Paul lays out for us. Paul was speaking to the religious men of the day, telling them, look at all the facts. Look at all the prophecies fulfilled in the Word of God. Read the Word of God in light of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Because if you take the time and actually are honest with the Scriptures and look at all of the prophecies, if you look at all the facts, if you look at all the evidence, and if you're honest with yourself and with the Word of God, there's only one conclusion that can be made. Jesus is God the Son. Now, what does it mean if Jesus is the Messiah? Paul goes there. Take a look at verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Think about what Paul is doing. He laid out all the evidence that he had. He laid out all the evidence he had from the Word of God, and now he's calling them to faith. Throughout his message, Paul was steadily referring to the mercy of God, and now Paul is telling them about God's greatest act of mercy, the forgiveness of sins that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he builds on this with verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by what? It's what we were talking about last week, by the law of Moses. It's by faith. It's not by the laws of Moses. By faith, you can be justified. You see, the entire focus here is on urging them to place their faith in Jesus the Christ. Through faith in Christ, a man or woman can be justified. Through Christ, a man or woman can be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God the Father. And Paul pointed out to these Jews that the laws of Moses could not truly ever reconcile someone to a holy and perfect God. Reconciliation to God can only come through the saving blood of Jesus the Christ. As we wrap up our last two verses, I want you to notice how different of a call of salvation that Paul gave from what we hear in the churches today. Because first Paul urged them to saving faith in Christ, and he gave them all the details from the Word of God, all the prophecies fulfilled, and then he ended, not just with Jesus is your best life now, but he ended with a warning. Take a look at these somber words of what he said. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. These are strong words if you're sharing the gospel. Would you share these words? These are strong, strong words. Paul is pulling this text from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, which was a warning to the people of Israel that King Nebuchadnezzar would invade them if they failed to repent. And in the present context, the threat seems to be that God would once again bring judgment upon them if they failed to accept the mercy and the forgiveness that God was offering. Judgment would come if they refused to believe that God is working through Jesus the Christ. I read a fascinating story this last week of a man in the late 1700s and early 1800s. There was this man by the name of Henry Martin. Now, he was a distinguished scholar. 
As a Cambridge University student, he was honored at just the age of 20 years old for his achievements in mathematics. He was given the highest recognition possible in that field. He was honored among men, and yet inside he felt an emptiness. He said that instead of finding fulfillment in his achievements, he'd only grasped at a shadow. Well, Martin became interested in the writings of William Carey, the evangelist doing missions work in India. Martin began to evaluate his life's goals and then sailed to India as a missionary himself at just the ripe age of 24. Sailing from England, he left behind family, he left behind friends, he left behind Lydia, the woman who had captured his heart. Leaving England was incredibly hard for him. He shed tears. And he said he felt like it was a man who had been told that all of his friends, every single one of them in the world, had died. He said the only comfort to him was when he prayed for them. And when he arrived in India in 1806, he prayed, Lord, let me burn out for you. In the next six years, he translated the New Testament into three difficult languages. His belief was that the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And that the nearer we get to Jesus Christ, think of this, the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. I believe that to be true. He started out as a chaplain. He preached to the natives. He translated the New Testament into Hindustani. He established schools for the native people at his own expense. His life was threatened often, but the work, it continued. Martin translated the New Testament and the Psalms into Persian. Now, why Persian? Well, Persian was actually the language of the land. All the way from India to Damascus, much of the globe in that day could understand Persian. Martin's New Testament was the first translation into Persian since the 5th century. But year after year of this tireless work meant that his health soon weakened. Tuberculosis had killed his parents, it had killed his sister, and now Martin had it too. And the heat of the climate, sometimes reaching over 120 degrees, weakened him even further. He took refuge in the mountains of Persia where he witnessed to the Muslims but Martin upheld the divinity of Christ. He upheld the truth of the gospel of Christ. And he was the only Christian there. He was the only Christian in this setting. And his letters, they show his struggles. They show his faith. At one time, Martin wrote this. I cast all my care upon him who has already done wonders for me and am sure that come what will, it shall be good. It shall be best. And I find that my wisdom is folly and my care is useless so that I try to live on from day to day happy in his love, happy in his care. Much of the time, Martin was now sick with a fever. And he finally decided that it was best to head home to England because of his health. But as he was traveling back to England, he got worse and worse. And then he died. And he was buried by complete strangers, buried by complete unbelievers in Turkey on October 16th of 1812 at just the ripe age of 31. Just six years, six years after he'd gotten on the mission field in India and had prayed, Lord, let me burn out for you. 
His genius was coupled with humility. His love for God was reflected in his passion for the scriptures. The work he accomplished for Jesus Christ were certainly not passing shadows. He lived intensely, and that's what I love about him. He lived intensely, but accomplished much. He compressed a lifetime of service to Jesus Christ in an incredible, awesome six years. Henry's last written words were these. I sat in the orchard and thought with sweet comfort and peace of my God. In solitude, my company, my friend, and comforter. That's awesome. That's awesome. I hope I have that faith. Henry Martin, Paul and Barnabas, men who are willing to take this journey of faith because they believed it, they believed it, they believed it, they believed it. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. I dare you to live with this purpose. I dare you to live with this purpose. Take the journey of faith, of walking by faith in Jesus Christ. And I promise you, if you do, you will find his comfort. You will find his peace as you live day by day to serve him. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.